Our epistle lesson and sermon text, once again, is Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. That's what I'll be reading. We'll be focusing in just on a couple verses. But listen carefully to God's inerrant word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, grant us a deeper knowledge of you and your love. For Christ's sake, amen. Please be seated. Today we continue our exercise in meditating on Paul's priorities in prayer. Our goal has been to learn from the apostle how to pray. Last week we began to consider this petition at the end, or petitions at the end of Ephesians 3. And we saw that the central theme of the prayer is resurrection power. And if you are looking at your handout... The prayer, the petitions, are in, in regular font. They're not grayed out. We can't expect to live in the power of the resurrection. We can't expect to keep in step with the Spirit and walk in the newness of life available in Christ unless we're asking God for the power that comes directly from the throne of the crucified and resurrected Christ. Okay, so the power that Paul's praying for is gospel power. It's centered on the cross. And we can't expect to live out the gospel that has saved us if we are not rooted in that gospel even in prayer. And so we'll see that all of our requests, all of the the petitions that make up these petitions and the sub-petitions in Paul's other prayers as well, they flow from the throne of grace, which is the throne of the risen Christ, the Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. As I said last week, when we talk about Christ's resurrection, when we talk about the event of Jesus coming out of the grave with a new body, we usually, when this 
topic comes up, we usually focus on its, its past implication and on its, future, or on its future implication, or maybe both. In the past, the resurrection of Christ established our salvation. It was for our justification, Paul says in Romans 4. In the future, it guarantees our bodily resurrection from among the dead, Paul says, at the end of this age. Okay, we live between those two times. We've been saved and we will be saved at the resurrection. But in these sermons on Ephesians 3, I want us to consider the present implications. Paul wants us to consider the present implications of Christ's resurrection. Paul says down in Ephesians 3.20 that the power he's praying for is already at work within us, among us, in our inner beings, in our inner selves, in our community, in our congregation, in the church, in individual Christians. It's a present reality in our hearts. And earlier in this letter, the same letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 1, he says that the power of God toward believers is the very same power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the, that's, what we're, that's the power we're dealing with, that we're talking about, that we're asking for, that we're petitioning. That's in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. So God's power, as we established last week at, at length, is resurrection power. And in Ephesians 3, Paul says that it comes from the Holy Spirit, so we can also call it spiritual power. Resurrection power, spiritual power are one and the same thing. Just different ways of referring to the same reality. The prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 contains two petitions. First, Paul prays that God would strengthen the saints with power through His Spirit in our inner being. That's in verses 16 and 17. Second, he prays that the Spirit's power would enable the saints to understand the infinite dimensions of Christ's love. That's in verses 17 to 19. Today we'll continue looking at Paul's two petitions. And as we do, my, my hope is that we'll learn more about the, the present implications of Christ's resurrection and its spiritual power, which is available, which has been given to God's people, to you, to me, to us. The first uh, present implication in verses 16 and 17, which we homed in on last week, is that you should pray that God would strengthen the saints with power through his spirit in their inner beings. That's the first point on your, your handout. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And, and last week, I tried, I, I, we, I tried to help us answer the question, what's Paul's purpose in this prayer? Why should we pray for power? What's the goal? What, what's the goal in asking God to give the saints at Christ the King Church, your, your brothers and Sisters, here, spiritual power. According to verses 16 and 17, the purpose of this petition, 
The thing that we're really praying for when we offer up this petition is the personal presence of Jesus. That's what we're asking for at heart. You see, the way in which God strengthens us with power through his spirit in our inner being is precisely by sending his son, by sending Christ to live, Paul says, in our hearts by faith. Spiritual power is personal. It's not an impersonal force. It's the person of Jesus Christ living in your heart. And yet the personal power we desire and seek is not for personal gain. We don't ask for resurrection power to get the upper hand in this world. Rather, we petition God for spiritual strength so that we can, for example, suffer well with Christ. That's, that's what Paul does in Philippians when he's asking for, for power, resurrection power. He even calls it the power of the resurrection. He needs it. He wants it. Why? So he can suffer well with Christ and for Christ. So we petition God for power so that we can endure trials with our eyes fixed on Jesus the whole time. So that we can be conformed daily to Christ's death, as Paul prays. So Paul's desire, his prayer here in Ephesians 3 is for Christ to live inside of you. For Jesus to take up residence in your inner being, in your heart, so that you become more Christ-like. That's the result. When Jesus moves in, you become more like him. That's how God the Father conforms you into the image of his son. He puts his son inside of you, in your heart, in your inner being, and then he transforms you from the inside out. And so at the heart of every prayer for transformation, for sanctification, is, is a prayer for Jesus to not just live in your heart, but to renovate your heart as he pleases, doing what he knows is best for the sake of your soul. The presence of Christ and the power of Christ live inside of you. They dwell in your inner being. And Jesus doesn't just live there. He renovates the place, your heart. And he does this so that it takes, the, it takes on his character and so that people can tell who lives there. And so let's continue to ask God to accomplish this in our midst, in, in one another's inner being, in one another's heart. So we've answered the question, what's the purpose of the petition? Let's ask a second question, and it still has to do with the first petition, the first point on the outline. Let's ask a second question. With what measure of resources is this prayer answered? Okay, What's the supply source? Paul answers that question at the beginning of verse 16. That according to, what? The riches of his glory. Some translations say according to his glorious riches. He may grant you to be strengthened with power. 
So what exactly are these riches of his glory that, that we depend on, that Paul's certainly depending on and teaching us to depend on in prayer? Well, in Paul's theology, the riches of God's glory, it's not the only time he uses that phrase even, or God's glorious riches, it refers to what God has already secured for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is clear from another passage that maybe is more familiar to you in Philippians 4. Paul writes, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. There he, put, he makes it clear. These are riches that are in, to be found only in Christ Jesus. And so for Paul, everything we receive from God comes to us from God by way of Christ Jesus. And that's the only way that they come when they come. Christ Jesus purchased our pardon. He reconciled us to God. He canceled our sin debt. He gave us the spirit. He gave us eternal life. He's, he, he gives us resurrection power. He promises resurrection life in the new world. He makes us citizens of heaven, children of God, members of the new covenant. He gives us his righteousness so that it counts as our own. Jesus is our risen mediator. And all of God's gifts to us are mediated through him, through Christ. In this way, God's sovereign reign over all things in heaven and on earth is directed to our good and his glory. Carson says, this is the son whom God sent to redeem us. In God's all-wise plan and all-powerful action, all these blessings have been won by his son's odious death and triumphant resurrection all the blessings God has for us are tied up with the work of Christ end quote with what measure of resources is the prayer for power answered what is the supply source for our prayer it's God's glorious riches in Jesus the supply is as extensive and as lavish as all the spiritual blessings and benefits secured for us by Christ. And so to undervalue the, the, the abundance of spiritual resources available to you is to undervalue Jesus himself and his work. To question the supply is to question the Savior. To doubt God's provision for us is to doubt the efficacy of the cross. To depreciate God's glorious riches is to depreciate God's glorious Son who has secured those riches. So rather than doubting or depreciating God's power supply, His power reserve, it's far wiser to believe that the God who saved us through his infinitely worthy son also has infinite reserves of power that he's ready to share with his people in order to bring us up, 
as Paul says, into mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 13. There's a bottomless treasure trove of God's glorious riches in Christ. Waiting. It's there for the taking. If only we will take the time to ask for it, to seek after it. If you ask God for this storehouse of infinite riches, it will be given to you. If you seek for this spiritual gold mine, it will be found. If you knock on the door of this treasure house, it will be opened to you. The existence of this treasure trove of spiritual riches in Christ gives Paul confidence to petition God for transforming spiritual power. Paul's persuaded, and and so should you be, so should I be, that the measure of resources with which this prayer is answered, the reserve of power waiting for those who request God for it is as extensive and as lavish as the benefits that Jesus secured for us on Calvary Hill. In other words, the supply is infinite. So the first petition in verses 16 and 17 is a plea for power. Power to be holy as God is holy. Power to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord, to Christ. Power to strengthen moral resolve. Power to mortify sin. Power to set your mind on things above. Power to put off the old self and put on the new. Power to give thanks in every circumstance. Power not to be anxious about anything. Power to slay pride. Power to repent of besetting sins. Power to be poor in spirit. Power to put the interests of others ahead of your own. Power to think of others as more significant than yourself. Power to be spiritually discerning. Power to be theologically discerning. Power to escape temptation. Power to be conformed to Christ's cruciform death. And power to walk in the newness of Christ's resurrection life. God's purpose for the men and women and boys and girls that he redeems is not just to have them come to church and believe the right things, certain truths. His purpose goes far beyond that. His purpose for you, his purpose for the saints sitting around you is is to transform each of you and all of us together in a lifelong process that moves us heavenward. God has promised heaven to us. Our inheritance, Peter says, is waiting in heaven for us. And now, in the present, he's preparing us for heaven. He's preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth. That's the essence of Paul's prayer. He asks the Father that out of, 
out of the glorious supply of riches in Christ, he might strengthen believers with power through the Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And that brings us to the second petition in verses 17 to 19. Paul says at the beginning, uh, sorry, in the middle of verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so the second point emerges from these three verses. We are to pray that the Spirit's power would enable the saints to comprehend the infinite dimensions of Christ's love for them. That's our prayer. Now, like the first petition in Paul's prayer, this second petition is a plea for power may have strength, Paul says. It's a plea for power. But the power we're asking for in this second petition, it operates a little differently than the first one. Its, it's purpose is to give us strength to do what? To comprehend, to grasp to grab hold of in our hearts, with our hearts, the limitless dimensions of Christ's love for his people. Now, what is Paul's assumption, his remarkable assumption in this petition? It's not that the Ephesians have no knowledge of God's love. That's not the assumption. He, in fact, he explicitly acknowledges in verse 17 that the readers of this letter are rooted and grounded in love, and that's in God's love. Okay, so he, he's not denying that. But what is he assuming? Well, remarkably, he assumes they don't appreciate Christ's love adequately. And he longs for them to comprehend the infinite width, the infinite length, the infinite height, the infinite depth of that divine love that is toward them, for them, that lands on them, that they are the object of. And this, this isn't a prayer that we would love Christ more. That's, that's always a good thing to pray for also. But that's not what this prayer is. Paul's, he's praying that we might better grasp Christ's love for us. Not that he would love us more, but that we would understand how much he loves us. When we pray this second petition on behalf of our brethren for one another as you work through the directory, when we, when we pray this, we're asking God to make 
one of the, the faith of the saint. We're asking God to make the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ a matter of personal experience. That's what we're praying for here. We're praying that the faith would become not just a head thing, but a heart thing, an experiential thing even. And that may be difficult for some of us to hear. Many of you may have been in churches or have friends and family in churches that elevate experience over Scripture, or certainly you know, on par with Scripture, even with Scripture. They, they, maybe they talk about a vague spirituality that's divorced from the gospel. May, may, perhaps you've fled from that kind of Christian community and you vowed never to have anything to do with anything like that or anything that sounds like that ever again. Many of us may be in danger of overreacting. We may be inclined to view any mention of Christian experience, even the terminology, with suspicion. But if we are to grow in the faith, the faith that we share, that that Paul had, if we are to grow in that faith, then our overreaction to this type of thing must cease. Scripture itself requires us to make room for, for deep, emotional, heartfelt experiences with God. And the Bible doesn't give you or me the option of excusing ourselves on the basis of personality or culture or church tradition or anything like that. If, if our personality or our theology prevents us from valuing the kind of experience that the Bible calls us to and values, then our personality or our theology needs to change. We must learn to pray with the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Or from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. And the psalm goes on. Psalm 42, 1-4. to Paul says in Romans 14 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of, of, the, of external and temporal things that will pass away along with this world. Instead, Paul says, it's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Psalm 14, 17. In the next chapter, Paul's prayer in the middle of Romans 15 asks precisely for a certain type of 
experience. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in, in, in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Romans 15, 13. Paul's personal testimony at the end of Galatians 2 is grounded in a knowledge of Christ's love for Paul. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me personally, first person, singular, who loved me and gave himself for me. And do you remember what Peter says at the, at the beginning of his first epistle? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice, listen to this, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, that's, that's a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Do you rejoice with inexpressible joy that is filled with glory? Well, oftentimes we struggle to rejoice with that kind of joy. But the real question is, is that something you value? Is that something you want? Is it, is it your desire? In the next chapter, Peter speaks of having tasted that the Lord is good. And the tasting he's talking about is not the physical tasting of delicious food. Rather, it's an experience that belongs to those who long for the pure spiritual milk, 1 Peter 2, thir uh, 3. And so the, the, the tasting that Peter has in mind turns out later in 1 Peter 2 to be an incentive to godliness, which means that it involves much more than in intellectual activity, intellectual satisfaction, and certainly something very different from physical eating and drinking. Returning to the book of Ephesians, in chapter 5, a couple chapters later, from where we are now, Paul goes on to say, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And do you see how he's, he's comparing, contrasting, the experience of being filled with wine and the experience of being filled with the Spirit. Wine offers a certain experience, a high, that leads to debauchery. By contrast, the experience of being filled with the Spirit brings with it not debauchery or hangovers or regrets, but wisdom and purity and joy. The very next verse says that being filled with the Spirit leads to singing and making melody to the Lord, with your heart, from your heart, beginning in your heart. Ephesians 5.19. And we're not even scratching the surface when it comes to the biblical witness, the biblical teaching on experiential faith, Christianity. The point here is that when we ask God to give one another the power to comprehend the infinite dimensions of Christ's love, we're not asking only or even primarily 
for intellectual understanding. We're asking God to give what we might call heart knowledge, experiential knowledge. Paul even says that it's a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. The knowledge of the love of Christ, which the love of Christ is beyond knowledge. And so you can't get to it with mere human intellectual knowledge. I typically have an ongoing debate, argument with my kids when they're little about who loves who more, okay? Uh, maybe, maybe you parents have the same uh, ongoing debate in your household. I hope so. And I, I insist, of course, that I love them more. But as you might expect, they're equally insistent on their greater love for me. And so then you create new, you know, new words like, you know, better, best, bester. You know, you just kind of keep going with those things. Now, one of the ways that I win the argument is by telling them that I love them this much. Okay, spreading out my arms as as wide as I can. Now, obviously, they they respond well. You know, I I love you this much too and what do I do at that point I point out that my wingspan is bigger which must mean that I love them more you know end of debate end of discussion I win now I obviously failed to think through uh, how this argument would backfire uh, as my children grew up to have bigger wingspans than I how are we to comprehend and, you know, and measure and think about God's love for us in Christ? How, how, how do we measure this? You know, what units of measurement are we talking about? Well, Paul, resor- Paul resorts to a spatial metaphor that is not entirely different from the, from the one I use on my children. To comprehend with all the saints, he says, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And then in verse 19, Paul introduces a stunning paradox to expand his meaning and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And it's like, okay, we were hoping uh, to kind of be able to nail this down a little better. And so he gives us a paradox to know something that you can't know uh, in a way that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But it is something we can know. It's, It's beyond knowledge of a sort, of a kind, but not beyond the knowledge or the comprehension that God can grant. Thus the prayer, thus the request, thus the petition. Paul's prayer, our prayer for one another, is that we would be strengthened to know a love that surpasses knowing on our own without the power of God. Paul wants you to know a love that's too big to fit in your brain. It's a love that can only be comprehended by a heart that's been changed by that love. The goal of the Christian life is to know Christ and his love experientially in your inner being, in your born-again heart. That is how you become filled with all the fullness 
of God, as Paul says at the very end of that verse. We shouldn't imagine that Paul wants believers to have some kind of uncontrolled, mystical experience. If, if that's what you're hearing here, uh, you're not hearing what Paul says. Hopefully it's not what I'm saying either. Christ's love isn't merely something we experience privately. The love of God in Christ was supremely displayed in history, remember, in the first century, in the 30s, the A.D. 30s. I think A.D. 30 was the year. On a cross, a physical cross, a wooden cross, on a hill that was just outside of the city Jerusalem. It happened when Paul was a young man. Christ's love, you see, is an objective reality, an objective event. It was displayed in an objective event, and it, and it manifested itself outside of you before it came to live inside of you. The love of Christ manifested itself outside of you, objectively, in space and in time, before it came to live inside of you. So Paul's not promoting an experience of divine love without limitations, an experience that transgresses the bounds of the gospel. He's not suggesting that any spiritual high will do. Any spiritual high can give, can be valid and helpful in your spiritual journey or something like that. What he's saying is that apart from the spiritual power that flows from the throne of the crucified and resurrected Christ, believers cannot grasp the infinite dimensions of Christ's love. We need the power of God to comprehend the love of God. And so we must ask for it. We must pray for power. We ask God to strengthen the brethren with his power so that they may experience in their inner being the love of Christ. And that they may experience that this love, to quote an old hymn, is as shoreless and as endless as eternity. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant us, all of us here, the saints of Christ the King Church, all who are worshiping in this space today, to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love and divine love and your love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of you, God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.